Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Up All Night and Are You Afraid of the Dark podcast. My name is Cortland, and with me today is Brandon. How you doing, Brandon? Hey, Cortland. I'm doing pretty good. Awesome. We also have a very special guest, the creator, writer, director of Are You Afraid of the Dark, Mr. DJ McHale. How are you doing, DJ? I'm very good. I, I should say I'm also I'm the co-creator of Are You Afraid of the Dark. My, my partner, Ned Candle, and I came up with the idea, so I'm a co-creator. Oh, I'm going to have to get Ned on this show next. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he's fun. So we have been working with our Facebook fans, our Instagram fans, and we have some fun questions to ask you today. Mr. McHale, if you're prepared for our interview. I'll be the judge of just how fun they are, gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully they're on par with what we had asked you a little over a year ago now. We finished up season two and we uh, sent you an email and you answered our silly, ridiculous questions about uh, the name names like Day Day and where you got jam and stuff. So I hope that some of our questions are at least a little on par with that. Oh, that was you guys. Okay, that yeah. okay, that was one of those things where it's like I saw someone write something. Maybe it was you or somebody else. Where someone was giving me shade for coming up with these wacky names. <laughs> and I'm like, wait, I grew up with those kids. What's wrong with that? <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, the Day Day and the weeds and the. <laughs> I miss the the silly names of season one. Season one has is so special, you know. It's just it seems so yeah. different. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I would go along with that. And I think the, the, if there's one difference of season one to the other seasons is we're, we're kind of making it up as we went along. And uh, and it's you know sometimes it worked, sometimes eh, not so much. But <laughs> uh, but but it was it was all new. One of the biggest questions that I want to know is not necessarily how you started. Are you afraid of the dark? But what made you decide to get into television, making a television show? What happened, DJ? It was um, being hung over in a Western Civ class in college. <laughs> okay. and, 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 and that's not a joke. <laughs> when uh, it, Well, it's two things. It's that, but even earlier than that, it was the fact that when I was a kid, I hated to write. And, Interesting. Okay. You know, ironically. And yeah. so in... It, and especially because I remember taking, I, I do, I do. One of the reasons I'm able to write for kids and for young people is I have a pretty good memory of things that happened back in the day. Um, I remember taking a test, and I was, I was like literally third grade, and it was one of those tests with there were a hundred random questions like, uh, "Do you like carrots cooked or raw?" You know, something totally made no sense. <laughs> okay, it was a psychological <laughs> thing, and and based on your answers, they you know mush it all together, and they tell you then what you should end up picking as a career and oh okay i seen the hey arnold episode with that one yeah oh really was it well yeah. my my ep mine came back as writer and i was like what are you nuts no way i want to be an astronaut <laughs> but uh but it turned out to be true but when i guess it was going into middle school or junior high as we called it back in those days where i really hated to write so there was a teacher in the school who recognized that at me and said, you know, rather than having to write these reports, why don't you make videos instead? Oh. So that got me into making videos. My friends and I, too, making videos. And what we made comedies, we made drama, we made science things. And not realizing that we're, there was just as much writing involved in doing those as there was in writing this stupid report on whatever it was. But I did it all through high school. And the thing that was so great back in those days is that that kind of technology was relatively new. Now people can do it with their phones. You know, it's so mm -hmm. prevalent. But um, no one was doing it back then. So teachers had no idea how to grade these things. So we always got A's. 
<laughs> and we're having fun doing it. So that I took that through high school, but but never thinking it was going to be a career. And then when I went to college, I had no idea what I was going to study in college, what I wanted to do. I went to Villanova University. That's where I first went. And it was in that Friday morning, 8.30 a.m. Western Civ class where I was hung over from the party the night before. And I did not want to be in this room. I did not want to be in this class. And I kind of looked around and the light bulb went on over my head that said, wait a minute, I'm paying for this. <laughs> this is not high school where you just kind of go. And I didn't go to private school. It's like, this is serious. Why am I here? What am I doing? So I really took stock of what I'm doing. And it was my girlfriend at the time who said, you know, you used to love making movies when you were in school and you stopped doing that. Why don't you consider that as a career? And that's when I transferred from Villanova and I went to NYU film school. And that's really where it started. So, so the real answer to your question went back to when I was a little kid, when I was in junior high school. And then when I was hung over in college, that kind of put me on the path to making, making TV and, and movies. So that, that, that is, that is literally the way it took me there. Wow. That's awesome. Did you guys, did you do anything besides, uh, are you afraid of the dark directing wise? Uh, yeah, my waiter's job, meaning the job that you take to pay the rent mm-hmm. before you make, get your break, in my case, writing and directing entertainment, was I was fortunate that my waiter's job for about five or six years after I got out of college was in the film business. And okay. so I wrote and directed and produced dozens. It, it was I was in the film business on the lowest rung, which was I made what are called industrial films. Mm-hmm. And industrial films range from how-to videos, corporate videos, oh, sales God. videos, news films, <laughs> public service announcements. I directed a number of television commercials, um, instructional video, instructional dramas. So I said action and cut long before I ever got into entertainment. Okay. Um, the thing that finally got me my break in entertainment is I, I lived in Connecticut at the time, and uh, which is right the suburb of New York City, basically. So it's essentially New York City. And uh, what was being done quite a bit in New York at the time was a lot of kids' television. Mm-hmm. So that's where the opportunities were. So I got in. I started writing ABC after-school specials. And I directed some, NBC had their version of that. They were called Young People Specials. So <laughs> that's what I first kind of directed before I started doing, well, I, I believe I said action and cut a million times before I stepped on a <laughs> on a, uh, a scripted entertainment show. So I was, I was pretty much an experienced director at this point. This one after school special that I wrote called Seasonal Differences got on the radar of the guy who became my partner in Are You Afraid of the Dark, Ned Candle. And he yeah. was looking for a guy to write the TV version of Encyclopedia Brown Boy Detective books. And somehow, I don't know how he made the connection, but he looked at this really earnest after-school special that I wrote and said, hmm, I'll bet this guy can write a silly comedy about a kid detective who solves mysteries. <laughs> the two couldn't have been any further apart. Um, but he was right, as it turns out. And so I wrote that series um, I wasn't involved in production at all. But then after that was done, he and I got together and said, hey, why don't we come up with our own show? And that's when we came up with Are You Afraid of the Dark? I love it. Brandon is a big uh, Encyclopedia Brown fan, just to let you know. Of the, yeah. uh, the, the books, I assume. Yes. Never seen the show. <laughs> well, that's one of the challenges. The, those books are, each of those stories are like three pages long. And it's the 
the case of the stolen mittens, you know, something like that. Yeah. So how do you make a half hour show out of that? In fact, how do you make the pilot it was an hour long? So it's how do you make an hour long? So I had to, I only took, of all those Encyclopedia Brown books, of which there are dozens, I think, I only took one actual story, one actual mystery from an actual book. Uh, and it's the way I opened up the pilot episode. And it was uh, the case of the Civil War sword. If you're a fan, you maybe even remember that, where uh, the the bully guy, Bugs Meany, was trying to sell a Civil War sword. To, I do remember uh, that one. Do you remember it? Yeah. It was an uns- to an unsuspecting kid. <laughs> And it was the reason why he proved it was a Civil War sword, authentic Civil War sword, because it was engraved on it, uh, presented to, I'm forgetting who the general was, uh, to commemorate the first battle of Bull Run and the date. And the way Encyclopedia Brown figured out that it couldn't have been authentic is because when it was engraved, there's no way for them to have known that there was a second battle of Bull Run. (laughs) <laughs> and this was the first Battle of Bull Run. So it's like, therefore, it was a full. So I used that as actually the cold open of the pilot. And then everything else after that was made up. I wasn't an Encyclopedia Brown kid. <laughs> it was before It was okay. before my time. Oh, okay. All right. That makes me feel better. <laughs> so we've been asking uh, some fans of ours on Instagram. And we're in this cool, I think you're actually in the same group uh, on Facebook, the Are You Afraid of the Dark Facebook group. And, um, you know, I like to include people in our interviews. So I asked them to ask you some questions and I'm going to read a couple off. So Brooke on Facebook, she wants to know about the intro sequence to Are You Afraid of the Dark? It's a completely iconic intro sequence. I see people on Twitter talking about how they're scared of that intro sequence to this day. Did you, were you the one that had filmed it? No, that was done by whatever division of Nickelodeon it was, but they, they made that at Nickelodeon. Um, okay. And I agree with it. I think it's fabulous. Um, Yes, they yeah. they delivered to me the picture, and I think they might have had a couple of sound effects in there. What we did with production is we added the music, so we did our our version of the of the theme to be part of that. So so yeah, so the the I had more to do with the audio of that than the than the visual, but uh, but it's the visual that makes it. I think it's great. I think I had read somewhere that you made the theme on like a, a napkin, wasn't it? Uh, it wasn't me. Something it was like it that? was. Uh, I think I read that too. It was a fellow by the name of Jeff <laughs> Jeff Zahn, um, okay. who, who did the thing, and and I think I read someplace too that he did it on a napkin and it was he co-wrote that with a fellow by the name of jeff fisher oh you know i want to take this chance just to digress just a little bit um of course you know, sure. i've done a, b- a bunch of these interviews and whatnot and i always feel bad afterwards that the questions never lead me to saying some of the things that i really like to say about the show and and mm-hmm. and one of the things i want to say about the show is that and, and this applies to all shows and it especially applies to spooky shows but I think, in my humble opinion, the music and the scoring for these episodes was fantastic. We had I we had agree. two guys, yes. Jeff Fisher and Ramon Fabi, who are the two composers for all the episodes. Not only the composers, but they performed the music as well too. And you know, we don't have an orchestra; they have it's all you know synthesized, you know, uh, computers. Um, mm-hmm. They did every one of these episodes, and it probably the only kind of argument I had with the Canadian production company that I did it with was, you know, they were always looking to do things on the cheap and their whole experience prior to Are You Afraid of the Dark was in animation. And so what they wanted to do was they wanted to hire a couple of guys to create a library of music. 
because I guess that's what they did in animation. And then just so whatever the episode is, you can just pick up, okay, here's the scary piece. Here's the tense piece. Here's the happy piece. You know, like, And I was just like, whoa, no, 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 no. This thing has to be scored to the frame. Every one of these episodes has its own character, has its own story, has its own tone. And the music has to reflect that because oftentimes the story is told through the music. Um, mm-hmm. And if, if you would watch any of those shows silently or just with the dialogue, it, it wouldn't be a fraction of what it was at the end. The, those guys made these episodes come to life. They were the last piece in the puzzle to make these episodes come to life. And and I, I wish people would give them more credit. Cause, and frankly, I think the reason why they don't get more credit is because a lot of it's subliminal. You don't really realize, wow, that was a really nice hook. You know, <laughs> people don't, it's not something as conscious when you watch it. But that music is working on you constantly. And it's and if sometimes there are episodes that were not very good or not very tense, but you add that music in there, suddenly it's like, yeah, I'm hiding under the bed. So uh, those two guys, Jeff Fisher and Ramon Fabi, are fabulous. Ramon's on one of those groups, actually, that you were talking about before. Oh, nice. Um, I'd love to talk to him. Yeah, I'm sure he'd love to. He's, he's posting. It's, it's actually, Jeff is, too. They both are. So Jeff Fisher and Ramon <laughs> Fabi. So I'm sure they'd love to hear from, from anyone who wants to uh, tell them how great they are. <laughs> but I want to say it here. I never get a chance to do that. So uh, so thank you for indulging me in doing that. Yeah, I was going to say, I personally adore the music. Um, Not to be like negative or anything, but like one of the episodes of The Hungry Hounds is a lot of people's like least favorite episodes. But the music in that episode is oh, so good. Yeah. It's like an epic like it. battle, medieval battle. Uh, I could listen to that sound like the soundtrack for that episode all day well, i love it well look at look at it this way for anyone who didn't particularly like the episode if it didn't have that music they would have hated the episode <laughs> it really would have been horrible yeah. oh the music is so good that one i love the music in um apartment 214 mm. recently the uh music in zombie dice i loved that so yeah music is a huge thing for me um i'm the kind of person that likes to listen to like video game music so i love the instrumental and the orchestrated and the classical stuff so it's one of my favorite parts and i love to showcase if, it. if you ever um I'm, I'm glad you feel that way because if especially if you're into filmmaking and 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 how things work and and you know what they're trying to do to me here too listen to the listen to the show with with listen to the music and just think what it's doing because every episode we we we, I, I would spot that thing. It's going to begin here. It's going to end there. Here's what it's going to be doing. Here's what it needs to be doing. Each one has its own unique character. Even things as, as, as obvious as Dr. Vink has a theme song. Sardo has a theme song. Each episode has its own particular character and sometimes its own particular hook. One, one of my favorites is um, the musical hook in uh, Dead Man's Float. It's it's you can hear it. I can tell you exactly where yeah. it first comes in, where they they the kid gets drowned in the beginning, and the lifeguard comes in and he jumps down into the pool, and their music comes that hook comes in the first time. You may not listen to it and say, "Oh, there's an interesting hook," but it works on you. It's like it becomes an earworm, and it becomes continue. Mm-hmm. It's it's so if if, if you're if into filmmaking, uh, give a listen to some of that music because it's, it's really really good. I definitely appreciate it. Thank you. I have a question. At the end of season two, we asked you some questions, and one of the things you said, and I'm paraphrasing here, is that being scary wasn't the main goal of the show, and that you guys were more interested in telling good stories with weird twists, like similar to the Twilight Zone, and that really stuck with me, because I didn't grow up with the show, I'm watching it for the first time doing this podcast, and in my mind, the show is a fright fest, it's 
ghost stories every week. It's jump scares. Like, that's what I thought I was getting into. And so when we got to episodes like Pinball Wizard or Full Moon, I was like, what is this? This isn't right at all. But when you told me that, it kind of changed how I feel about the show. And, you know, episodes like that are some of my favorite ones. Like, there's just, they're just good stories. Were there any ideas for the show that were floating around that were too weird or out there? Like, maybe it was an interesting idea, but it just doesn't fit with Are You Afraid of the Dark? Boy, I'd have to go back to the... I can tell you some things we tried to do and couldn't figure out a way to do it. Because, again, it's it's a show for kids, too. And so there's just right. there are certain limitations. Um, one of the things that Nickelodeon asked me early on was they're, they're so afraid that that parents are going to be um, beating down their door saying, oh, you're, you're, you're warping my kid. What are, you, what are you doing? What are you doing with the show? So they said to me, as best as you can, try to use literary antecedents to, as jumping off points for, uh, for stories. And I think that's probably the reason why. I, I wrote three scripts before we even had the show picked up just to prove that we, it would work. And when it came time to do a pilot, I said, which one do you want to do? And they picked The Tale of the Twisted Claw. And I think they picked it because it was literary antecedent, was The Monkey's Paw. And and there are yeah. a number of episodes, probably not as many as I think there were, but there are a number of episodes that were like that. So in keeping with that theory, I thought, okay, what other literary antecedents we could use? Where I hit a brick wall was trying to come up with a Are You Afraid of the Dark take on any Edgar Allan Poe story. Those just did not translate yeah. into Kid World. <laughs> it's, it wasn't going to happen. Uh, another one was Frankenstein. I just couldn't come up with a story that felt like <laughs> Frankenstein, but was kid friendly. It's just, it just wasn't gonna work. Um, so, so, but I, I don't know if anyone ever. I, I can't remember. I'm sure it happened. I can't remember if anyone ever pitched the idea, and I was like, "Whoa, we can't do that." I, I don't re recall that. Uh, but I will say, if, if our goal was to be as scary as possible, we would have been a lot scarier. Yeah, it was it was more to be to tell really interesting stories across the gamut. It was an anthology show, you know. I do the same thing every week. So you get an episode like Long Ago Locket. You know, there was it wasn't really all that scary at all. It was just more of a <laughs> compelling, weird Twilight Zone type story about a kid going back in time. So so that really was the goal. I will tell you something kind of funny, and that's when we were the very very beginning when we were doing uh, Twisted Claw or even writing Twisted Claw. One of my thoughts was, because I remember when I was a kid, I remember the things that I remembered, the things that haunted me, the things that gave me nightmares weren't interesting <laughs> stories that had twist endings. <laughs> they, were, they were images. Uh, I just saw the other day, uh, someone did something on Facebook. They showed that iconic, cheesy shot of Vampira coming towards the camera <laughs> from, uh, from Plan 9 from Outer Space. I had nightmares about that, that image. You know, it was like a pretty woman who happened to be a vampire was coming at me. And I literally, I remembered having nightmares about going around the corner of my house and she was there coming at me. So, so, and I had a couple of others like that too, because I'm warped. But I, I remember thinking, I don't want to show any image that will give a kid a nightmare. <laughs> that went out the window in episode one. I was going to say, mine <laughs> happened in uh, Lonely Ghost when Beth went through the mirror. I don't know why, but that scared me as a kid. Like, I mean, I was like three when that episode came out, so that could have helped. But <laughs> well, that helps too. And so it, it's funny to me, or, or interesting to me, that when 
Yeah, because of, of social media, people talk about the show and they write about the show. You know, I talk about the show more today than I did back when I was making it, um, including making it. <laughs> I talk more about it today. But, um, you know, never thinking 30 years later you'd be talking about it. It seems like the episodes that people most remember and talk about are the ones that have some kind of iconic image yeah. like that. Um, the ghastly grinner, mm -hmm. dead man's float, that thing coming out of the pool. Uh, the doll maker where she's taking the hand off that's, that's yes. broken. Um, though, and it makes sense because it's visual and you, you, so it'll stick with your brain more. You don't necessarily remember that there was a guy running through a civil war, I mean, not civil war, revolutionary war scene and being chased by redcoats. You know, that, that's not going to, you're not going to remember yeah. that. Uh, but that doesn't mean it wasn't a really good, compelling, interesting story. You know, there's no image from phone police that's going to stick with uh, you. We actually <laughs> have a question about phone police. So. <laughs> Uh -oh. <laughs> okay, go well, for Lisa it. on Facebook actually wants to know in the tale of the phone police what the green liquid is in the picture that Annie pours into a cup doesn't take a drink out of and then pours down the sink <laughs> oh boy um, <laughs> well I'll, I'll tell you I, I dread questions like this because <laughs> Uh, no, no, it's, no, it's fine. It, 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 like when I'm on a book tour, because I'm an author too, and I write books. And when I'm on a book tour, I always dread that moment. You're in front of a bunch of people, mostly kids, and you know, a kid will raise their hand, and you call on them, and they and they stand up, and never, it's some kid who puts his hands on his hips, and he looks at me, and he goes, <laughs> "So," and I think, "Oh God, here we go," and, and and his question will be something like, "In book." Four, why did Jason drop the green liquid down the sink? And I'm thinking, there was a Jason? <laughs> well, I don't remember Jason. I barely remember book four. Because remember, too, that, and, and I don't want to be disappointing. I, don't, I want to have answers to all these it's things. It's okay. I have written hundreds of stories. And uh, whether they're books or been shows that have been produced, and then you add in all the things that I've written that actually didn't get oh. produced, it's a lot. Probably the last time I watched Phone Police was just as we were about to deliver it to oh, Nickelodeon. God. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't even watch it when it's on the air. So, so, so and and I'm at a disadvantage not only because I'm old and and and. I've written a lot of things, but usually the people who ask questions like that just saw it yeah. or they, or they just read yeah. the book. So, uh, believe me, if I watched phone police, I would probably have a, I, I guarantee I would have an answer to that question. But as we sit here right now, Lisa, I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't remember. I don't know. I hate to be disappointing, but I don't know. Hey, you guys, DJ emailed me back with an update for this question. Hi guys. As promised, I went back and watched the tale of the phone police for the first time since probably 1993. Well, Putting it kindly, it may not be one of the best realized episodes of the show. I was pleasantly surprised by the weird script that was written by David Preston, the same guy who wrote the tale of the dream girl. It was definitely a Twilight Zone-esque story. Did it all make perfect, logical sense? Absolutely not. But who cares? It was a fun premise filled with lots of quirky turns and surprises. Unfortunately, the finished show didn't really do the script justice which is a memory that came screaming back as I watched, so thanks a bunch for reopening those wounds. There was only one thing that made absolutely no sense to me, and I don't know why it was in the episode. 
I have no idea why the sister poured the green liquid into the glass and then dumped it out. I have a vague memory of wondering the exact same thing back when we were editing the show. I can guarantee that wasn't in the script. I also remember wondering why the two boys did that little back-and-forth jig as they were escaping from jail. That made even less sense than the green liquid. In both cases, you'd have to ask the director why he added those odd bits of business. If I could have cut them out, believe me, I would have. So, there's the unsatisfying answer to the question about the green liquid. At least now I've answered it. DJ. Let's go to the Midnight Society. Pixie Pruitt on Instagram or Cynthia on Facebook. She wants to know what your inspiration was for the storyteller's seat, or as we call it, the throne. And she wants to know what it was made out of. Oh, that's that's good. Uh, my um, the the person who designed and built that was a fellow by the name of Rial Pru, who's mm-hmm. our uh, production designer. Um, and he's it's an interesting thing about the show is that we shot the show in Montreal, and um, Montreal is very much a French Canadian province of Canada. Yeah. So, and most of our crew uh, were French Canadian, and the French kind of sensibility and French cultural sensibility is way different than Ohio. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, so, and Real, it was, it was typified that. So I, so much of what's unique about the show, the look of the show comes from Real's sensibility in creating things like this wacky, pointy storyteller's chair. Um, And it's stuff that you don't normally see on, certainly not on kids TV and certainly not back then where I would have trouble is getting and, and the and the costume designer uh, Claire Nadon, who did the first five seasons, I believe, she created all those amazing costumes, all the wardrobe that that had, she had this amazing sensibility. She come up with these things. Where I had more trouble is having them dress the kids in normal everyday clothes. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's just like just put a pair of khakis in a in a polo shirt. That's all I need. They're like, no, we don't wear that kind of thing. I'm like, oh my God. And they couldn't find it. And for it, so, so it was way more of a challenge to have the kids dress normally. So our standard was just like, make them preppy. Yeah. Preppy flies. It, it, it's timeless. Just make them preppy. So when someone's watching the show 30 years from now, they might not necessarily go, oh my God, look what they're wearing. <laughs> look at those balloon pants that they're wearing. You know, we try not to, to go there. But with the storyteller's chair in particular, we want something iconic, and that that came out of the mind of Real Pru. And it was made of, um, you know, it was it was probably uh, carved out of styrofoam, and then uh, a, a glaze put over it, like a hard resin glaze mm-hmm. put over it. So it was, uh, it weighed about half a pound. <laughs> <laughs> so like anything, when, you know, it's made to look like a rock, but when you sit down on it, you don't want to wobble around because it's only a, it's only a pound. Yeah. I wish I knew where that was. Now I don't. I hope he kept it. I don't oh, know. You know, speaking of that. Not the th- not the throne, but Herjot on Facebook would like to know if you know where the newspaper clipping is from the tale of the Dream Girl. I know that's a another specific question, Ooh. but yeah, I don't. I don't know where most of the props are. I I held on to three props, and and it's so funny. I wish I held on to more. Frankly, like that newspaper clipping, that was a good one. Yeah. Um. But but normally that something like that would go to the writer of the episode, who's a fellow by the name of David Preston. Mm-hmm. Um. Which I can actually, I'd like to give a shout out to him too. Certainly, yeah. And and I'll say this about it: that, that we did ninety-one episodes of Are You Afraid of the Dark, and I worked with all the writers on it. I, I probably wrote from the ground up twenty some odd episodes, but I can't come up with all these stories. So we had a number of really amazing creative writers on the show, and people would pitch me ideas. You know, I didn't have a staff; mm-hmm. they pitch me ideas, and when I liked their idea, they would write it, and I'd work with them to write it. And depending on the the experience of the writer or lack of experience. 
uh, I ended up having to do a lot of work on these episodes. Um, the one episode that I probably worked the least, no, I know I worked the least on was the tale of the dream girl. Yeah. Uh, David Preston came to me with this idea right off the bat. I was like, sold. <laughs> right. You got it. And then and each, every step of the way, it was just like, that's good. That's good. I like that. That's good. I mean, it was uh, unprecedented. I mean, that didn't happen 90 other times. Well, not counting the episodes I wrote, however many other times. Uh, that did not happen. I think I did a minor dialogue polish on that. But that, that episode was, and when they talk about this, the Sixth Sense being inspired by that, yeah. uh, that was David Preston. He That was his idea. Um, but it, it, a thing like a newspaper clipping would probably go to, like that clipping. I, I didn't write or direct that episode. It would go to the writer or it would go to the director, I assume, or maybe the actor and whatnot. Okay. Um, the three that I kept were the gargoyle oh, icon ooh. from Dangerous Soup. Okay. Which, which is kind of funny because it was it was a lawn ornament. You know, it was not, <laughs> it wasn't, you could find it in any garden store. Where it, cost, it was the end of the season. We were out of money, in it, oh. but it looked good. And, and And I saved it and I brought it home. And but it was a lawn ornament, you know. It wasn't some thing yeah. that was fabricated and made. It wasn't like the storyteller's chair. So I was like, eh. So I, I I used I put it on my front step where I have other potted plants and whatnot, thinking that's eh, a garden ornament. But then someone stole it. Oh man! And, and it and it went from a lawn ornament to Doctor Vink's icon. Is like, I can't believe I didn't. I, I, I what an idiot I am. So I don't have that one anymore. Uh, the other two that I have, I have um, the treasure chest from Cutter's Treasure. Oh, where nice. uh, where Rush goes to the uh, the Magic Mansion, and that's where he finds the treasure chest that he opens up. This is spyglass inside. So I still have that. I put every Halloween, I put Halloween candy in there. When kids go to the door, I open it up, and that's where they get their candy out of that. And then and then I have the, probably the best prop of the all ninety one episodes, and you can't not have this. Is I kept the twisted claw from a uh, oh cool. Claw. I was gonna say, is so, it the hand in the jar? <laughs> no, I don't. Have, I don't have that one. That's probably that's probably a. Uh, <laughs> disintegrated by now right but, uh, right but but i do have a twisted claw i'm looking at it right now actually oh that's um, awesome so as for the others i have i have no idea because i because when you're making the show you don't necessarily think about it yeah you know to me it's just like okay done next and so where they sometimes i guess they go to prop houses i think we may have sold some to prop houses they can use in other movies i remember the uh i don't know if this actually happened but that whole cavern that we built for cutter's treasure um, there was a restaurant that wanted to buy that whole thing oh. to make it part of their motif of the restaurant. I don't know if that ever actually happened. I hope it did because that would be cool. That would be cool. Um, yeah. So, uh, so that's as for the other ones and the newspaper clipping. Uh, I don't know. Someone I saw someplace. Someone came up with the uh, the artwork for the comic uh, of uh, Ghastly Grinner. Oh, cool. Um, I saw some someplace that somebody found the artist and got the original artwork. So I thought was a, that mm -hmm. was a pretty cool one. When I did the interview with Amanda Walsh, who played Susan Henderson in The Tale of the Dollmaker, she still has the porcelain hand from that. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, yeah. so there you go. It's a good example. It was given to the actor. Yeah. That was the best part of that episode. It was. It was very iconic. And everybody <laughs> remembers it. It was so cool to talk with her about it. <laughs> I, I Oh, I could tell you a funny story about that episode. And and it's uh, it, it's it, it's funny in and of itself, but then I'll give it context and it makes it really funny. Okay. Um. <laughs> in the second season I brought on a good friend of mine to be the post-production supervisor of the show and so he handled all post-production up in Montreal he's a guy from New York but he went, brought him up to Montreal and uh, one of the things that he really kind of 
became more interested in than just doing the grunt work of post-production was he liked post-visual effects. Mm-hmm. And so he would spend a lot of time with this, this, uh, this other artist who would, he wasn't an artist, he was a producer. And this artist, they'd spend hours doing these effects. And this is the olden days where they were like writing code for these things. Nowadays, you could probably just, you know, punch it up on your computer and <laughs> do all these amazing things or your phone for that matter. But back then, these guys would be up all night coming up with some simple, simple effect that you look at, you're like, yeah, that's fine. But, but it took them forever to make it happen and and one of the things they did in the doll maker there's that kind of climactic moment where the two girls oh. are sitting in the uh the the window yes and 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 the, the the hero girl makes the correct thank god leap of logic that we aren't in this house we're really in the th- we can jump out of this thing and we'll be in the uh, attic and we'll be safe yes. so they they jump forward out of the thing now the if i wanted to have some kind of effect some kind of magical effect in that window to show that something magical happened and what these guys came up with and my friend came up with i hated it <laughs> I, I, I could and and apparently it was really hard to do so and we're out of time so it wasn't like go back and redo it I called it the boyoing. Because <laughs> yes, it, yes. it looked like if you added the boyoing, <laughs> that's what it looked like. You broke the plane of the shot and boyoing. We didn't add that sound effect, which would have been funny. And so I, I will forever, for the rest of the show, I call we're not doing another boyoing effect, are we? <laughs> so, I mean, he's a good friend. It was all in fun, but, but, and it's fine. No one would care. The, the the thing that so that the story is pretty good in and of itself there, but the thing that makes it so great is my buddy has gone on to an incredible career being a post-production visual effects supervisor that he started doing Are You Afraid of the Dark? And, and not the least of which of one of his credits is he produced all the visual effects on Game of Thrones. Oh, I've heard man. that, yes. So <laughs> he went from boing to, <laughs> to, to flying dragon. <laughs> he was the one that did the effect in um, Midnight Madness of, of Pete walking through the screen, right? Yeah, he, now again, he wasn't the artist. He uh, fell by oh, the name okay. of... Denis, Denis Mondion, I think his name was, was the actual artist. Okay. Steve Kovac is his name. Steve Kovac is the producer, and he's the one that's writing herd on everything and, and writing the artist. So he wasn't the artist in Game of Thrones either. He's the producer. He's the one that had to make it all happen and, and herd the artist together. So, yeah, that was uh, those two effects in, in Midnight Madness between with Pete going into the screen and then the vampire coming out. That was, that yeah. was Steve and Denis who did that. So good. I loved it. I got to say, he is ahead of his time. Um, because <laughs> the boyoing effect was totally like in Mario 64 when Mario jumped. Oh, was it? Game, <laughs> so, totally ahead of his time, and it stuck with us, and it's all good. <laughs> the the only better sound effect would have been the 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 Warner Brothers be whip. That would have been a good one for that too. So you had talked a little bit about the tale of the Carter's treasure, which is the only two part episode, at least from the original run of the show. Were there any other episodes that you would have wanted to do a two-parter for? Uh, the, well, the thing that's interesting about Cutter's Treasure, the reason that came about, there are a couple of unique things about that, is that <laughs> it actually was, uh, the reason it even existed as a two-parter was for home video. They wanted to do a special oh. thing for home video. Okay. So we, so it actually was an hour-long episode that I recut down into two episodes. So when it <laughs> first aired, it was, it was as an hour, and the two aren't exactly the same because... You know, you had to add different things and whatnot. Like, for example, the uh, at the end of the first episode in the half hours, um, we had a reason for him not to fin- complete the story. So we have to start to rain. Yeah. And the kids run off. That's not in the hour long episode. They just blast through oh. in the hour long episode. Okay. Um, that's also the only episode that was shot in 35 millimeter film. 
Um, and I don't know why it turns out it didn't look any better than the rest of the show. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't think I noticed anything different. Yeah, and you shouldn't have, which is really, <laughs> which is really annoying because it costs a lot of money to do a thirty-five. We shot a thirty-five Panavision, which we really turns out, oh, looks the same. <laughs> which, which will speak to how good the rest of the show looked. Um, yeah, definitely. The uh, so the only other one that, that's actually multi-part was the the Silver Sight, which we did yeah. in uh, in season seven, maybe. And and I, I'm actually really I, I wrote that one, and and I'm really kind of proud of that episode because it, it doesn't get the love I think it deserves because I think the whole final two seasons don't get the love they deserve just because yeah. I, I think people have grown up the people who are big fans of the episode show when they were 10 suddenly they're 20 and it's not the same anymore mm-hmm. where which is i think is really unfair because some of our best episodes were in the that that last uh 26 um and one of them is is, is silver sight and and speaking as a writer that was a very complicated story that's told like rashomon where you're going you're seeing bits you're jumping ahead you're going back you're seeing things you're seeing teases of seeing you see the same scene again a couple of times i mean it's a really amazingly crafted story that um and again you really need to see it yeah as a 90 minute as opposed to a three half hours i know so i was uh, when did that come out? Like 2000. So I would have been like 11 years old or so. And at that point, you know, my life, I wasn't watching TV quite so much anymore. But I remember coming back and watching the Silver Sight three-parter. So I have seen it once. Brandon, I'm sorry. Spoilers, there's a three-parter. Um, All right. <laughs> but uh, or, it's, or it's a 90-minuter. Yeah. yeah. But uh, I'm really excited to come back and see that because that's the only part of season seven that I've seen. So I'm super excited to see that one again. And, uh, you know, Brandon and I just started season six a couple of weeks ago, and I like to think we're really optimistic about it. And everybody seems to trash it. You know, the IMDb scores are so low, but ever since, you know, what Brandon had said with you saying, you know, not every episode has to be spooky, it really stuck. I think we're stuck with both of us. So we are going into everything as optimistic as we can finding what we like about even the worst episodes. I mean, <laughs> well, the, the thing that's, that's kind of, I, I guess I get it. No offense. Of course. Still, <laughs> oh no, that's right. Uh, but it's still, well, cause I know it's as good as the first uh, 65. One of the things that's kind of, fr- I kind of get, but it's so frustrating to me is that a lot of people base their opinion on six and seven based on the makeup of the midnight society. Yeah. I yeah. Can tell and that. it's like, whoa, talk about missing the point. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I tend to, this is unfair of me, but I tend to discount the value of the Midnight Society because to me, the value of these episodes are the, the tales. Yeah. They're all little individual movies. The Midnight Society, they're like Rod Serling. You know, no one's going to say, oh, I really liked Rod Serling's intro in that movie. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's more than that. I get it's more than that. And it's the whole reason I created the Midnight Society is because you want to have continuity between the episodes. And, and little did I know just how important the Midnight Society was going to be. Um, and I'm glad it was, frankly. But but I think it's unfair to judge the episodes based on, oh, I don't like those Midnight Society characters as much as I like the originals. And, and in fact, yeah. the fact is, if we had started with that Midnight Society, that would have been the preferable yeah. Midnight Society. And, That's and so true. Bit, so so you, it's kind of a little bit missing the point. Now you may or may not like episodes, and that's fine. Everybody has opinions, but but if you take away the Midnight Society, and by the way, I really did like that Midnight Society, but they just weren't the originals. There, some of our best episodes were were in season six and seven. Silver Sight is one of them. Um, the the Night Nurse. The I loved Oblivion. I ran into a, a guy the other day in my office who he says, "Excuse me, you DJ McHale?" 
And I was like, yeah. And he goes, oh, I, you know, he was in his 30s, I guess. And he's like, oh, I loved Are You Afraid of the Dark? My favorite episode was Oblivion. I remember doing a project about it in school. Hmm. So so it's like um, the time trap. Oh, the Sardo with the time trap. I love that episode. Because <laughs> I love Sardo, too. Oh, but, yeah. But there's uh, the, the secret admirer. I mean, there's so many really, really. And there are some that aren't so good, too. <laughs> but you can say that about the first 65 as well. So, yeah. so if you can try to be objective about it and, and uh you know take them for what they are and and, and not compare them to uh because of the midnight society oh i hear you yeah we're totally like i said we're going to definitely keep an open mind on all these episodes and i feel like i tell this to people all the time i mean everybody seems to really dislike hungry hounds but even hungry hounds has great things in there so i know we're going to find the fantastic stuff in every episode yeah the hungry i, I get hungry hounds it's it's not it's kind of a soft script but some of the images are great. They um, are, yeah. The story is a little odd, but <laughs> but there's like you said, there's a lot to be said for it. Yeah, I mean, I could find good stuff in Phone Police too. I if I wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it was that green thing that was poured down the sink that was so. Yeah, good, that was the best part, and you dumped it down the drain, Mister McHale. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a question for you about the Are You Afraid of the Dark books. Specifically, the Nightly Neighbors book, if that's okay. Sure. Okay. So I know I just asked you about any other episodes you'd like to make a two-parter. Well, the Are You Afraid of the Dark Nightly Neighbors book really expanded the story. I mean, it it made Emma into, like, from a, you know, just a character kind of bland into, like, this badass. And she really saves the day and everything. And were there any other stories that you had wanted to expand? Like, did you ever think of more like sequels or prequels, like maybe like dark music or something like that? Uh, I, I wish I could say yes. Um, certainly there are episodes that I think could have been translated into larger stories. You know, not necessarily let's continue the Are You Afraid of the Dark version. Yeah. It's just like, wow, this this could be a feature uh, or this could be a, an hour-long episode of another show or something like that. It just seemed like when, when, the, when the book started, um, Simon & Schuster because they were also owned by the same company that owned Nickelodeon, said, hey, we want to come out with a book series to compete with Goosebumps. Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) Should have just stopped right there. (laughs) And they didn't necessarily want to do novelizations of uh, of the show. Um, They did do one novelization. They did uh, Cutter's Treasure. Um, I have a question about that real quick, if that's okay. Uh, sure, go ahead. So just to like I have an add into, I uh, read the novelization of Carter's Treasure, and the only thing they changed is that Vink drives Rush in his car to the cemetery. <laughs> that was the only, I, I got I remember, that was yeah. the only thing that was different. It was so it was really verbatim. But yeah, it was that. it was pretty much verbatim. And then oh, the, the poor kids, they had to walk home from the cemetery. Because <laughs> <laughs> oh, Vink nice. left them. <laughs> well, it's Vink after all. <laughs> but sorry, um, I, I apologize. <laughs> well, they, they asked me if I wanted to write any of them. Um, and I didn't particularly want to, but, but I always thought that of all the stories and and I'm trying to remember exactly when in the process of the series that we started doing this, but it was probably fairly early on, maybe in second season or something that I thought, wow, there's any story that what happens next? It was nightly neighbors. So I said, I'll write a novelization. Uh, in fact, I'll write it with, I wrote it with, uh, uh, Kathy Derby. That's my sister. (laughs) Oh, nice. I wrote that together. So she came up with a lot of the ideas. In fact, she came up with. A moment that I love, and I've I've never seen it 
that's not to say it doesn't exist. Just mm-hmm. I've never seen it or read about it in any other vampire story where there's a scene where I want to say it's been a long time, but I think it was in the library. Yeah. Where Emma is hiding and she's in an area where all the vampires are asleep. Yes. And she's lying down next to all these sleeping vampires and wondering when they're going to wake up. I've never seen that in any other oh, yeah. vampire story where you're tense. just. It was good. That was my sister came up with that. But it was fun to kind of take it to its conclusion because that, that if there's any cliffhanger we had, it was that one. And but there's there's one thing that that I will forever be grateful for for those are you afraid of the dark books? It's that when when people ask me, I, I I'm an author too, and I've and I've written a lot of books. Yeah. Um. And so people ask me, how did you get your first book published? Because mm-hmm. they have books they want to publish. So I, I say to them the absolute true story, though it's kind of tongue in cheek. I say. Okay, I'll tell you how to get your first book published. Okay. If you follow these easy steps, you too can get your first book published. I said, first, create a hit TV show. <laughs> uh, yeah, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm writing then, this yeah, down. Yeah, check. <laughs> then step two is make sure that the network that does the TV show wants to do a spinoff book series of that show. Mm-hmm. Then offer your services to the editor who's doing that book series and, you know, help them guide some of the books and give notes on the books. You don't necessarily have to write them, maybe write one, but give some notes, but just to prove that you really know what you're doing. You're somebody good to work with. Cause yeah. then five or six years later, when you have your own book idea, you can go back to that editor and say, Hey, remember me? I worked on that thing. I have my first book I've never written before. What do you think? And she'll say, sure, let's give it a shot. And that became Pendragon, a multi-million dollar <laughs> selling book series. So, so I I owe a great debt of gratitude for Pendragon from the the Are You Afraid of the Dark books because oh, we went back to the awesome. same editor to do this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, I say the same thing about podcasting. Step one to making a successful podcast is to be famous. So, same thing. Yep, yep that'll do it. That's easy. <laughs> it's, it's it's the old Steve Martin line. You can be a millionaire. And not pay taxes. First, get a million dollars. Check, okay. I'd like to talk more about your work as an author. Um, like you just mentioned the Pendragon series. Well, I, I uh, things are very pendulum-like. Um, yeah. Back when I made Are You Afraid of the Dark, generally speaking, dramas were made, live-action dramas were made for kids on TV. Yeah. There was, it was kind of a renaissance for kids' live-action TV back then. But then the pendulum swung away from that into doing all comedy. Uh, and a lot of them were the multi-camera stage comedy, whatnot. And suddenly kid dramas were not happening anymore. Yeah. And But that's what I write. I don't write comedy. So if I wanted to continue writing the kinds of things that I like to write, the kind of stuff that comes out, I thought, well... I'll try my hand at books. And that's when I came up with the Pendragon series. Okay. And and little did I know it was going to click. And so I have published, I don't know, 25 books or so, um, bestsellers and all that kind of stuff. But my most popular is, is Pendragon. It's a 10-book series. I okay. highly recommend it. When, like, because uh, my son's five right now. Any age recommendation you have for it? Yeah, you know, it depends on the kid. Five's a little young for Pendragon. Okay. Uh, five is probably more my Monster Princess picture book. Um, I, I'd say that, that Pendragon, it's like really well-read seven-year-olds, okay. seven or eight-year-olds. Perfect. Um, and, and on up to adults. Adults read it too. Okay, so, cool. uh, yeah. But, uh, and you know, you always, there were always those kids like, my kid read all the Harry Potter books when he was two. And I'm like, oh, okay, fine. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all, right. 
Um, if, you, if that's the kid, then sure, you, you can read. Then they can read Pendragon. Okay. Um, some of my other books are a little bit older than that, like the Morpheus Road, if you like horror. Uh, the Morpheus Road trilogy is uh, is about a, a, a teen guy who's being hunted by a, a malevolent spirit. Uh, my Silo trilogy is a science fiction adventure about uh, people who are trapped on this island and there's an evil force going on. So so I've written a lot of books, all of which you can find on djmichaelbooks.com. Or at Excellent. least find out about them anyway i will put that in the episode description for sure awesome um but now the pendulum swung back a little bit too Mm -hmm. so that suddenly and and i think this has a lot to do with the streamers coming online is that more live action stuff is being done again for kids so i've turned my attention back to tv right now so i've got a number of shows in development Mm -hmm. um none of which have been picked up for series yet but you know they're all you know knock on wood yeah um it's really kind of and i really kind of miss being on the set because I haven't been on the set for a long time. I, I had a renaissance for about three years when I was making the TV show Flight 29 Down. Uh, we shot in Hawaii. And, oh, and nice. six months out of the year, I'd be on the set and making Flight 29 Down. And then just when I was, that was getting old, <laughs> I was tired of working on it, I'd finish the season and then I'd write a new Pendragon book. Okay. So I got to just totally be in totally control and write Pendragon. It was really great. Then when I started going, getting stir crazy and getting cabin fever, I'd go back for another season of Flight 29 Down. So I had a great three-year stretch in there. I wish I'd go back and do that again. Oh, that um, does sound wonderful. I, oh, it's great. But I, I do really miss being on the set. Remind me, I said this when I'm in the middle of some godforsaken cornfield in the middle of the night <laughs> and it's 12 degrees. And I'm like, what was I thinking? How did I? Or, or waking up having breakfast in a cemetery, which we often did in Are You Afraid of the Dark? Okay. Um, so, uh, so I'm, I'm getting back. and and because of the pandemic, um, what's being developed a lot now is animation. So I've got a couple of animation shows in development right now, which I'm, I really haven't done before. It's really kind of fun. It's amazing. It's a whole new world. I'm, the stuff I'm learning is amazing. So, so I've got a bunch of stuff in the pipeline right now that uh, that hopefully will will see the light of day. And, awesome. and uh, So yeah. that's kind of that's what I'm working on now. Sweet. You know what? I have one final question for you, if that's okay. Sure. You know, in season one, you teased us with the return of Goth from the Tale of the Sorcerer's Apprentice. Did you have any plans for him to return? Zero. Oh, man, you did Zero. goth so dirty. <laughs> I've been waiting for you know, goth funny, to come back. It's, it's funny when, when people when people ask me, what's your favorite episode and whatnot, um, or what's your least favorite episode? Yeah. It, it's I'm, I'm the worst person to ask that of because I have so much more baggage. I have, I have so much. My impression of episodes is so much more than just the episode. Yeah. I'm assuming um, you got like emotional attachments and yeah, positive and negative. <laughs> and when I think of that Sorcerer's Apprentice episode, yeah. um, I directed that episode, and and all I could think of is being in that godforsaken pool, <laughs> and we're trying to fill it with dry ice, and it wasn't <laughs> filling up, and uh, it, like hours or two, we're in the middle of the night, and the, and the poor goth guy is like, ah, 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 he's waiting, <laughs> and, the, and it's like, oh god, is night ever gonna end? <laughs> so, that, so that is my, the overriding memory of that episode is being in that stupid pool that the the effects guy couldn't fill it up with dry ice, and we finally eked it out, and it looks fine, but. Oh, oh yeah, God, I, I think we used every single freaking frame that we had. In order to have <laughs> Be, because the thing is too is that when you're, I, I always kind of make this joke is that when you're doing things on low budget, which the show was, we can't afford to fake things, so we have to do it for real. Yeah. So we didn't have the money in post production to say, well, we'll just add a bunch of 
smoking here and making effect because that would cost a lot of money so, so instead it's like well i guess i got to fill the pool up with the smoke oh. <laughs> so we don't have to worry about it afterwards because it's cheaper to have a smoke machine for a couple of hours or many hours as it turned out because <laughs> it wasn't working properly oh no yeah so no there was no plan to right. bring goth back in fact if anything i'm going goth again it'll be, it'll be too soon <laughs> i understand <laughs> we just really like to make fun of goth he was he was incredible <laughs> Well, it, it, that was go, but that was so fun. I mean, it, that was one of the things. I wish I had the outtakes of that show because you know it's like this this big golden headed looking <laughs> guy who was. I think we had him on a teeter totter or something underneath. That's the other thing. The smoke had to cover the teeter totter because he was going to rise up and fall backwards and whatnot. And this guy is such a sweetheart of a guy. I forgot his name. Such a sweetheart of a guy, but he's just like I'm trying to act all while well, he's waiting for hours. He's like trying to act and be overacting. I'm going to chew the scenery here. <laughs> i i gotta laugh too because you used uh you know when we did the episode for sorcerer's apprentice bran was like a school would never abandon a pool and i was like oh brandon just you wait (laughs) oh like a year later we finally got to dead man's flow and man well there it comes does your school have an abandoned pool mr McHale? no but (laughs) Um, you know, the inspiration for episodes comes from everywhere. Yeah. Um, the, there was one school that we shot at quite a bit in Montreal and it was really cool because it was such an ancient looking place. It doubled for things other than a school. Like for example, this school in the basement of the school, we used it for the, the scenes in, uh, the night shift where it's where the vampire Oh, brought his yeah. his uh, 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 coffin, and that's where they burned the coffin. And then we did a lot of scenes down there because it's where all the boilers were for the school. That was that same school. So we shot it. And then we also shot corridors in that school, too. So we were back in, in that school quite a bit. And if I remember, that school had an empty pool. That's the, That was the pool <laughs> from that school. And, uh, and so that was kind of the inspiration to say, ooh, let's do, hey, there's a school with an empty pool. Let's do an episode about a school with an empty pool. And that's where Dead, Man float, Dead Man's Float came from. Wow. So, yeah. yeah. That's cool. I mean, this, I mean, believe me when I tell you, this school was creepy as all hell. It was, it was huge. It was right in the center of downtown. It was big. And there was, oh, I mean, those boilers hadn't been used in forever. It, uh, so, yes, there are schools with abandoned pools. Or I don't know if they're abandoned. They're just not in use. <laughs> You know what? I'm sorry. I do have one more. I'm sorry, DJ. How dare you? So one of the like most entertaining parts about doing the podcast, and when I do my notes for the show, I mean, I, I go in detail, and I, I'm watching these episodes for two hours taking my notes. But one of the coolest parts is seeing all the callbacks to earlier episodes. I mean, there's there's the obvious ones like, you know, Zebo calling them Zebo and, you know, Zebo's Big House and stuff like that. But were there any subtle ones that nobody really noticed that you snuck in there like uh i know I, I don't know if this is just me but in mystical mirror with uh laura bertram the character cindy goes up into the upstairs and i i swear i see a dark dragon little vial of potion up there were there any ones that nobody caught or just are very subtle um oh, you know boy i wish i could remember off the top of my head i don't remember other than the zebo uh throwbacks i don't remember doing things like that like putting props i i certainly believe there are plenty of props that showed up in multiple episodes mm-hmm. only because we had a prop room okay and and we use so uh, well i'll tell you one thing that, that's used quite a bit are um the fake tombstones 
Yeah. So, so Ron Oil is in a lot of episodes. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, and those are you know styrofoam things because and the reason we did that is because we shot in real cemeteries and the law is I don't know what law it is but apparently it's a law if not just ethical is that you're not supposed to show names of actual names of people's tombstones. Okay. And it's just not cool I guess. And unless you have to get, I guess you have to get a release from them, I guess, or their family. I don't know. Mm, yeah. Um, so, so they're, but it's really hard. You're shooting a cemetery when there are dozens of tombstones. How do you frame a shot so you don't see any of the tombstones? Um, and again, you can't, in post-production, you don't have the money to go and Greek it all out. So, mm-hmm. so what we would do is we'd bring our four or five styrofoam tombstones with us and place them in perfect places that would <laughs> block names of real people and so so those are you could probably go through each episode and see how many times those tombstones show up yeah uh, the uh and things like in the magic mansion i'm sure there are a lot of things in the magic mansion that uh are used in multiple episodes i don't think we ever had the same actual physical magic mansion twice because we always shot that on location someplace <laughs> it was always a different shop that happened to be abandoned that <laughs> or empty that day so we're like okay here's the magic mansion today but, but i'm sure there are lots of them but I can't think of any in particular where we're like, oh, let's put this in there because it was okay. for a different episode. Yeah. Um, that's not to say others didn't do it. The, you know, not to my knowledge, other directors might have done it, but I, I'm, I don't remember. I'm not aware of any specific ones. Okay. Well, I, th- I think that's all we have, actually. It's a lot. As I said, I can ramble. I, well, you know what? This has been a really incredible experience. I mean, I loved this show as a kid and getting to talk with, you know, the co-creator of it, that's it's really big, you know? <laughs> That's, I never, never expected this. It was my pleasure. I mean, it's, I've, I talk about the show more today than I do when I was making it. Um, <sighs> never expecting that to happen. You know, when it's over, it's over. Yeah. Um, but it's it's fun. It's fun to know that 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 people still remember it and it's very much alive. You know, people are still watching it thanks to the pirates on YouTube. Um, <laughs> but it's fun. The idea that people still talk about the show and and uh, uh, and thank you for not asking me where Eric went. Oh, you're um, welcome. <laughs> in our minds he's dead and, and eaten by wolves and the coffee creamer is uh, monkey bone dust ground daily by gary's dad so it's good i i so one person asked me about where eric went and their speculation was that the the dust was actually eric <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's dark okay yeah, that's pretty dark <laughs> but, but i mean the reason i never addressed eric is because I, I didn't think anyone would care yeah little did i know 30 years later, people are going to be asking what happened to Eric. <laughs> it makes sense, though. I mean, seven members of the Midnight Society, I, I understood. I mean, I didn't even pay attention to it as a kid. I thought, you know, when Kristen got replaced by Sam, I didn't even notice the difference. <laughs> right. That's my right. level of well, detail that, back when I was five. Of course. It's not until you go back as an adult and say, hey, wait a minute, that's not the same girl. Yeah. <laughs> Which was always my attitude. It's like, who cares about the Midnight Society? It's about the show, but but I'm, but sh- I'm wrong. No, nah, it's okay. I'm sure you know it like now, but you know, my generation, we all seen the Midnight Society members as like eh, like friends. You know, it's all a group that you can be a part of, and you know, they tell stories, and you're there too, and. I don't know. Everybody wanted to be buddies with Gary and, and Betty Ann for sure. Well, and that's the whole reason I thought it up. I mean, as well as to make it uh, an excuse to tell scary stories, but <laughs> it, it, but it's an anthology. Anthology shows are hard to catch on. So this was the continuity. And I tried to have the different stories be reflect the personality of the kids. So, you know, I did, put thought, I did, I did give importance to it, credibility to it, mm-hmm. but 
it was also so easy to do. I wrote all those scenes. I wrote every one of those scenes. Even episodes I didn't write, I wrote all those scenes. It was easier for me to write it than for, for to try to get a writer who's just writing one episode up to speed on who Betty Ann was and who Gary was. You know, it's just, it took more time to do that than if I just wrote them myself. Yeah. Um, so I did, I did subliminally recognize the importance of them. Um, but it was just such a throwaway thing. It was our week. It was our two weeks off from the production because it was just one set that we shot during the day. We shot... Uh, Midnight Society, one episode in the morning, a second episode in the afternoon. One more. It was just, it was, oh, it's like, oh, thank God. We can have a regular lunch time. We can, we can break at a normal time. We don't have to shoot at four o'clock in the morning. This is great. <laughs> so the, the challenge is making the rest of the show. So it's, but, but I, I did recognize in its initial stages the importance of Midnight Society <laughs> that apparently continues to this day. So, I, oh, yeah. I, I, yeah. so I love them and I love all those kids. Yeah. They all, they all went on to do such great things too. And, and I think this was a lot of their, um, you know, their first steps. It was great. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, uh, I, I'm still in touch with Ross all the time. Awesome. Gary. Yeah. Um, I guess that's pretty much it. You know, I see him on Facebook every once. I see others on Facebook every once in a while, but th- that's pretty much it. So I did. I did run into Rachel Blanchard at uh, at an airport once. Really? And uh, I'm up to her, and I'm sure she gets approached all the time because she's known from various things and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So here's some guy coming up to her. You know, she had that look of trepidation of like, "Who's this guy approaching me? <laughs> I don't know." And uh, so I was just like, Rachel, I'm sure you don't remember me, but uh, okay. She was also in the show Crisscross we made in in England. Mm-hmm. That was on Showtime, so we we had Rachel on two different shows. So uh, so she she was she did know who I was after I <clears throat> after I reminded her, and uh, <laughs> I, I I did have a fun one. My office is or used to be because of COVID, I shut it down. But it's on a, a in a, a, a studio in Los Angeles. Yeah, and they were shooting the show. I want to say the show was Scorpion. It was a CBS show, like in a. An I remember that being on. Thing. That wasn't too long ago, was it? No, no, it's just been like the past ago. ten years. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, okay. and it ran for a number of seasons. I, frankly, I never saw. But <laughs> but I, I, the only reason it was on my radar is that one of the actors in that show, one of the regulars, was in an Are You Afraid of the Dark episode. Mm-hmm. And he's the kid who, of course, I know him better from uh, from American Pie movies. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He's the one that got with Stifler's mom. And uh, <laughs> Eddie. Eddie is his name. Yeah. Yep. And uh and it was really fun. And they, sh- and they shot in the same studio where my office was. And one day I was going out to lunch and the production had set up outside of my office building. They were using the office building as a hospital or something like that. So the whole crew was there. And and I saw Eddie, who, who frankly, I only laid eyes on once in person. It was in the audition. Yeah. I didn't direct, I didn't direct that episode. And uh, so I went up to him and, and, you know, he's again, got that you know, actor, somebody's approaching an actor face on. And I said, uh, excuse me, uh, Ed, I know you don't remember me, but I just want you to know that, that uh, you were in a show I did a long time ago and, and you were fabulous and you were one of the reasons the show was so great. He goes, really? What show is that? And I said, are you afraid of the dark? And his face just lit up and he was like, oh my God, that was my first gig. Oh my God. Say hi to Ron. Ron that's right. Ron Oliver directed it. Say hi to Ron for me. Oh my God. God. So that was that was a really fun throwback experience. I love it. Uh, one of my favorite things, I didn't do it at the beginning, was to go through IMDb and see where all of these actors have, have gone since then or what they did previously. So we see a lot of Arthur um, from Are You Afraid of the Dark? 
<laughs> a lot of kids in Oh, the, the 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 cartoon? Yeah. 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 Well, well, not only was that produced in Montreal, it was produced by the same company that produced Sorry, Fair to the Dark. Ah, that makes mm-hmm. sense. Okay. Yeah, so jo- Jody was on that. Uh, a couple of others were on that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was the same. That's why I said that company mostly did animation. Are You Afraid of the Dark was the first time they got into uh, live action, which is great because they had no idea what they were doing. So I had carte blanche doing whatever I wanted to do. It was great. Yeah, that's the best part of the show, honestly, is to see like the liberties you took and the experimentation. And it just it looks like it was a lot of fun. No one told me what to do, including Nickelodeon. I mean, it was it was it was kind of the best of both worlds because I was shooting in Montreal with a production company that really was had no hands-on they had no i take that back they had zero hands-on this thing especially because they had no idea what they were doing they had never done live action so other than trying to tell me what kind of composers to use which i said no um they just said okay go ahead do what you got to do and from a nickelodeon point of view we're in another country yeah so there was never anyone from nickelodeon on the set they heard so i could do whatever i wanted to do it was great i've never had that carte blanche since Sounds fantastic. And and frankly, it's it's I think one of the problems with movies and TV is that sometimes there are just too many cooks in the kitchen and things get watered down and just if you just have somebody who's got a strong vision, let him let him make that vision. And it's gonna be much better, much easier, much cheaper than than if you have everyone weighing in. Yeah. I just wanna know how much did you have to do with season six and seven? Because you weren't you weren't in Canada when they were filming it and stuff, right? I, I kicked it off. I went up there at the beginning. Um, okay. I, I did. That's why it's, it's funny when people say, have read that like, oh, it's a whole new crew, a whole different thing. It's like, no, it wasn't. The, <laughs> okay. I, I did everything the exact same way as happened in episode one through 65, except for the actual shooting of it. Uh, I felt, I, another guy I would love to give a shout out to is Paul Doyle. Mm-hmm. Paul Doyle is one of the four people who had a hand in every single episode of that show. He was the editor for the first 65 episodes. Okay. Working out out of New York, by the way. Again, it was a New York production. Um, And so he knew that show inside out. So when it came down to those those last two seasons, I didn't necessarily want to go back to Montreal to have hands-on the way I did with the production. So we sent Paul to Montreal. Mm -hmm. So he was the guy on the ground who, who put the production together. However... Everything leading up, all the development of scripts that, it, to the point that I handed off to production, I did it the exact same way I did it in the first 65 episodes. I had my fingerprints on every one of those scripts. Okay. Then once the, once the show was in the can, then I stepped back in again. So I did the music spotting in every one of those episodes. I, I worked with the composers. I worked with the sound design, just, just the way I did in the first 65. The only thing I didn't have as much hands-on, I didn't direct any of the episodes. Okay. And and I, I didn't pick the wardrobe. I didn't. I still the casting. They sent me tapes, so I picked casting. Um, but I didn't pick locations. I did. I, I chose directors. I chose the writer. You know, so so it really was pretty much the same as the okay. first sixty-five. It was the same makeup people. It was the same wardrobe people. It was the same production designer. It was all the same. <laughs> so it, it wasn't a whole new set of people that suddenly came in and bastardized the show. It was all the same people. That's the. That's what people seem to want everybody to believe, too. I mean, it's the internet. You can't believe everything you hear. But you go on IMDb and there's just this hit of, like, what Virtual Pets, I think, had, like, what, a 3 out of 10. We just did Gruesome Gourmets today. And that episode was great. And there was, I think it was a 3 out of 10 on IMDb. And it's just like, I don't know, there's this like hate you know if it's not exactly what you want from your rose-tinted nostalgic glasses or whatever then you hate it and 
Yeah, we're definitely not going into this like that. That's not I, I think that I think that's a big part of it. Now, certainly, if you is an episode you don't like, you don't like it. That's fine. Uh, I said there are plenty I don't like too. But to but to kind of cast that umbrella. Oh, episodes sixty six through ninety one. Oh, they're crap. That's that's not your. I, I discount that because it's just not true. Or at least from my opinion, anyway. I trust your opinion. You know, you did kind of make the show. So. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's all I got for you today. Is there anything you'd like to promote? Uh, you know, your Instagram, Facebook, or anything you're yeah, working on? Uh, I know I've seen that you had the uh, the ghostwriter on the, the new Apple TV stuff. and. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's funny. I'm, I'm about to do something. This is kind of fun and a little scary. Okay. Uh, Apple TV Plus is uh, they're about to launch a, a, a new set of ghostwriters. Um, and they asked me to become, like, the host for this little series they're doing, Ghostwriter Beyond the Page, uh-huh. um, which is about helping kids learn how to write in the context of the Ghostwriter episodes of the first four arcs of the series, of which I wrote one of the books for them. So uh, so we're, I'm getting ready for a shoot where I've got to like be talent all of a sudden and, and, and memorize lines and talk to people. So that's going to be, a, I don't know when it's going to be done, but it's going to be on YouTube uh, in a couple of months, I guess. So that's kind of fun. Um, and I actually, I have, it's, I'm part of a new book that just came out. If you remember, you guys are probably the right age. The book's uh, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. Oh, yeah. Oh, um, yes. It was a great anthology series back in the 80s. Alvin Schwartz was the editor on those. Um, a fellow a friend of mine, John Mayberry, who's a great horror writer, mm-hmm. he's kind of, he's put together an anthology of short, scary stories, kind of paying homage to Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. It's called Don't Turn Out the Lights. I think I've seen that. Yeah. Yeah, it just was published last week. Yes, um, yes. And uh, it, it, so he reached out to a lot of terrific writers. I was one of them, fortunately. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's if you like short, scary stories with, with uh, all sorts of spookiness and if you don't like this one, there's another one coming up and that's a really good one. Uh, don't don't turn out the lights. But beyond that, uh, people can find me everywhere. Uh, you can Instagram, Facebook, tw- uh, Twitter. And all my all my handles are you know highly secretive. It's DJ McHale. Ooh. Um, Okay. And uh, yeah, keep that under saucy. Your it's, it's a, yeah, I know that's. A, um, I don't want any hackers trying to figure it out. <laughs> right. Uh, the uh, and then also and my website is djmichaelbooks.com and that's where you can go and read about all my books. I don't have anything about the shows on that. It's it's all my books and and there's a good kind of synopsis of each of the books and and gives you a good cool. overview of the kind of stuff that I've written. So uh, go there. Yeah, I've definitely been excited uh, for my son to get a little bit older so I can at least read him your books to him. So I'm looking forward to it. Okay, the first one you should start with. Here you go. The first one you should read to him. Uh, It's a series. It's three books. It's called The Library. Okay. And it's very much Are You Afraid of the Darkie? And it's about a haunted library filled with books of unfinished ghost stories. Oh, nice. The kids get to actually enter the books and they have to solve the mystery and and defeat the ghost and all that kind of cool cool. stuff. So that's that's a little bit younger than Pendragon 2. So that that would be a good read aloud. Though it does get pretty intense. (laughs) Cool. I'm looking forward to it, man. I can't wait to check it out. Well, thank you so much. I sincerely appreciate this. I, like I said before, I never in a million years would have expected to ever talk to you. So this is uh, really cool. This is really cool. Well, especially with this pandemic and, and yeah, right. social media, I am amazingly uh, accessible. <laughs> it's unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> when do you have time? Well, uh, today. Yeah. <laughs> I know. yeah, I messaged you like what Wednesday or something. You're like, how about Saturday? And I was like, uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, weekend actually things are getting a little busy for me too, so weekends are a little bit better to do stuff like this. So, 
So it's worked out perfectly. I thank you very much for having me on. Yeah. It's great, guys. Thank I really you. appreciate this opportunity to talk to you. All right. Well, I know it's like it's like three o'clock in the morning or three o'clock in the afternoon, but man, I think I'm gonna I'm, I'm heading in for bed. I've been up all night. <laughs> <laughs> thank you again, Mr. McHale. Bye, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>